Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you live your faith in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me today remotely is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Sapiniak. Hey, Kit. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us again this week. We are so glad that you can catch us right here every week on your favorite Catholic radio station. Do remember, if you ever do miss us on the radio, make sure to catch us online. You can go to mncatholic.org forward slash podcast because then you won't miss any of our future conversations, and you can check out all the great history of all of our discussions. In today's episode, we're talking about our roots, the places we come from, and why so many people ending up needing to uproot themselves to pursue education or careers. Could changes in public policy help enliven communities facing the brain drain? In our mailbag segment, we answer a question about advocacy efforts and policy priorities now that our state's regular legislative session will continue into a special session. And, of course, we want to leave you some practical tips on how you can put your faith into action. In our bricklayer segment, we have details on an important effort to help ensure taxpayer dollars won't go to funding abortions. And, listeners, if you ever have an idea for the bricklayer segment, or maybe it's a question that you have about politics, and make sure to send those questions our way. Shoot me an email, show at mncatholic.org, or you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for Minnesota Catholic Conference. We're now joined on the line by Grace Olmsted. Grace is a journalist who focuses on farming, localism, and family. She's a big fan of Wendell Berry. Some of you, our listeners, may have heard of Wendell Berry. Her writing has been published in the American Conservative, The Week, The New York Times, The Washington Post, National Review, and The Wall Street Journal, among other places. She's the author of the newly published book, Uprooted, Recovering the Legacy of the Places We've Left Behind. She lives in Virginia with her husband and three children. Grace Olmsted, it's great to speak with you today. Thanks for coming on the Bridge Builder Program. Thank you so much for having me. Why did you write Uprooted? Who, who's the primary audience for that? Well, the audience is, I hope, people from both Christian backgrounds and secular backgrounds who really care about the earth, their communities, their neighbors, and the church, and are really seeking ways in which to serve them and also recognize the fact that in our modern world, it's difficult to live in one place for a long time. We've made it difficult to root yourself in a community, and many people, young and old, have had to move in order to find jobs or or support in various forms over the decades and long before that, actually. (laughs) You said we've made it difficult for people to to stay in the places in which they've been planted, so to speak, by the Lord. Is it public policy? Is it the culture? What has what has compelled? What has made it difficult for people to stay uh, in their places of origin in their homes? I think it's a combination of things, and I think it goes back really far into our history as a nation. There's a history of colonialism, for instance, displacing people throughout the history of our world. But in America itself, we see that there's oftentimes a lot of mobility and movement surrounding the ways in which people try and build communities in the United States and the frequency with which those communities are then abandoned when whatever economic resource they were built on gets dried up or lost. And so many towns in the Rust Belt, for instance, have felt this if they're in a place where coal or manufacturing used to be 
the most common thing in Idaho. There's a, a long legacy of deforestation and the treatment of resources like the soil getting used up and then the communities moving on. And I think that speaks to our economic system. And it also speaks to the fact that we are very focused, as Alexis de Tocqueville once wrote, in America on constantly bettering ourselves. We're very discontented with wherever we are and whoever we are, and we're constantly trying to improve our fortunes in one way or another. It's almost like George Bailey, and it's a wonderful life, right? <clears throat> He's got mm-hmm. great ambitions, mm-hmm. that, and success in his mind is going somewhere and, until he finds success in Bedford Falls. It, it's It's almost like that storyline it captures kind of the heart heart of your argument it really does yeah and it's it's interesting how for george bailey he sees himself as stuck he doesn't want to stay in bedford falls and yet when he kind of is able to see what that community would look like if he had not rooted himself there he begins to see all those strands of membership and interdependence and love that make it a better place because he's rooted in that community. It's it's such a great story. Indeed, the lives he's impacted in the way in which we're all part of that great chain of being. Now, it's undeniable that many have to leave their homes to pursue educational opportunities. Should this be something that's temporary, or is mobility just something we have to live with? What if there are not legitimate economic opportunities in one's place of origin, or do we just need to be more intentional about the life track that we pursue in the first place? Intentionality is such a good way to think about this, and I really tried to emphasize in the book that some people really do have to leave home behind whether because there's a dearth of economic opportunity where they live and and joblessness is not a good situation for rootedness, um, or whether maybe there's some trauma or personal circumstances that require a fresh start for a lot of people. I've talked to people for whom ministry or perhaps being a part of the military has forced them into a much more transient lifestyle, and they're seeking ways to be rooted in the midst of that. Um, call to transients because their vocations require a lot of mobility. But also, I looked at the life of my great-grandmother in the book, and she's someone who grew up in the heartland and then moved to Idaho. And she did not exercise that moving into a new place in a passive way, but in a very active way. And so when she moved to Idaho, she was, as you said, intentional. And so I call her an example of a healthy transplant, someone who, you know, didn't stay in their homeland community, but when they moved someplace else, they lived in that new place with all the love and stewardship and devotion of someone who really wanted to make it better for their presence. Places in the Midwest, for example, have suffered brain drain. You know, the metropolises seem to be booming, but outside there are all sorts of challenges in rural areas in greater Minnesota, for example, where we're from. What is the cost to a community of the most intellectually gifted people leaving, uh, the people who seem stuck and then going to the universities and urban centers or college towns and then locating themselves in those uh, creative class-type cities? How are the places we leave behind hollowed out and what might be needed to induce people to stay? I think that it's important to emphasize that it hurts the communities that are left behind, but it oftentimes hurts the people who leave, too, because there are certain goods and virtues in rural America and in rural towns that are distinctive parts of their character that you can't get in other places. And that doesn't make one better than the other. It just means that both need to be valued and loved, I think, for what they are, for their particularity. When we leave those places behind and, and join a city, say, I think 
there can be excellent ways in which we then work out membership, community, and interdependence in those cities and make them better for our presence. But the more we move around, I think the more we can lose a sense of our roots. We can lose a sense of how we love particular places well. We don't have the long knowledge that's born out of living in a place for a long time, or indeed, in my case, being part of a multi-generational sort of rootedness and community since the, you know, in my own case, the turn of the century up until the present moment, that gives me different eyes for how I live in place and, and to see the needs of that community. I think when we leave places behind, and in particular, when rural America experiences that sort of brain drain, there's ways in which that hurts its ability to be loved and to be loved well and to be known for what it is. And so I am hopeful we can begin to emphasize why loving those places matters and how it also can result in greater health and flourishing in our own personal lives. Indeed. Now, are you seeing with the COVID dynamics and workplace opportunities, working remotely, the advent of Zoom, that people are rethinking, you know, having to live in big cities? And is this something that might revitalize return to home and place as work options become more flexible? It is interesting looking at a lot of the data that's been collected over the last several years that show that counties with less than 250,000 residents still experience a lot of out-migration, but they're also experiencing substantial amounts of in-migration as well. And during the 2020 pandemic, you saw a lot of young people kind of between the ages of 18 and 29 return home. It's actually the largest constituency of young people to be living at home since the Great Depression. Now, not all those people will stay there, especially as schools get up and running again and people return to their colleges or universities this year. But I do think that you see, and from anecdotal evidence, I've seen a lot of those young people expressing a desire to be in rural communities or in, in the places where they grew up. And so I do think that there's a lot that's promising there. The difficulty and the challenge, of course, is just that we don't want to approach place as consumers. Something I've tried to emphasize as I've talked about this book with people is that it's meant to kind of combat this throwaway culture, as Pope Francis has called it, in which places and people are seen as interchangeable or disposable. And I think that if we approach moving into a new place, even into the place that we once lived with that consumptive mindset, then it's going to be very tempting to leave it behind again when life gets difficult or when our communities or neighbors um, annoy us or require more of us than we want. And so I'm hopeful, but I think there's this larger attitude toward place that we need to recover that emphasizes fidelity and stewardship and love in the midst of difficulty. Grace, I want to delve deeper into that. I think that's an excellent point and extremely well said. Turning from the issue of culture to the, uh, the question of ethics, is place really an accident of our birth, or do we have responsibilities that we owe to our place of origin and the communities in which we come from? It's such an interesting question because I think to some extent it's a very modern one. Willie Jennings talks in his book, The Christian Imagination and the Origins of Race, I think is the subtitle, just how much we have lost a sense of place as modern humans. Yet through most of human history, this wouldn't even be a question, right? Our geography would be an inexplicable, inextricable part of, of who we are. 
we have more choice as modern humans, and that can be an incredibly good thing in some ways because it means if you are in a bad situation, in a place where you feel stuck, you can leave it behind, and, and that might be very salutary. Yet at the same time, it means that as people who are called to ministry, to discipleship, to forms of liturgy and um, service that are very much embedded disciplines that require habit. We're very out of practice, I think, in making those happen in our day-to-day lives and in a specific geography. And I think we see kind of a desperate need for love in a lot of neighborhoods and cities and rural areas throughout the United States because we've lost this view of ourselves as what Wendell Berry calls placed people, people for whom soil and environment and ecology and geography all matter deeply. And once again, that isn't to say you have to live in the community where you grew up, but I do think you could argue that we were all meant to be gardeners, to steward and love a space well and to love it for the long haul. And that's just the sort of love that happens through permanence and cannot happen through a more temporary attitude toward place. We're speaking with Grace Olmsted. She is the author of the new book, Uprooted, Recovering the Legacy of the Places We've Left Behind. Grace, what role do you think politics has played in the, what might be called, displacing of people from their place of origin? In other words, focusing our attention on the national as opposed to the local, helping people uh, focus their energies on national issues instead of focusing their moral agency on their corner of the vineyard in their place where they can actually exercise responsibility. And as you mentioned, Tocqueville, that first school of democracy is local politics. What role has national politics played in displacing us on some level? I definitely think that a growth in partisanship and polarization on um, kind of the charismatic national figures that we see in Congress or in the White House have all served to distract us from our own spheres of influence, stewardship, and love. The Supreme Court, too, is an example of something we can oftentimes fixate on for good or ill and lose out on that larger vision of what can we do practically where we live. I think oftentimes there's a very strong sense of disillusionment or apathy that can come with that fixation on national problems that you then see kind of humorously when people say, when, you know, for instance, the opposing party's president is elected, oh, I'm going to move to a different country, right? They think that because there's a new person in the White House, they've lost all sense of agency or belonging. And I think that's something we need to combat very strongly by saying, no, you you still have so much you can do, regardless of who's in the White House, regardless of who's in Congress. You have a town, you have a community in which you can play a very vital role. And that is where everything starts, as you so beautifully point out and as Tocqueville points out. And I think our media, national media, has had a large role to play here. And the disappearance of local and regional newspapers has also emphasized this because when we get on Facebook or Twitter, we often see the big national stories. And so to the extent I think we can pick back up or revitalize local news and the reading of it, I would hope that that also might turn our gaze more homeward and give us a very practical set of things we can do to serve our own communities. Can you say a little bit more about those practical things? What do you suggest are some practical ways in which we can recover a sense of place and and really aid our communities in a constructive and concrete way? 
Well, I think there are obvious ways in which being a part of local politics, showing up for town council meetings, having a voice within local elections is part of that. I also think that there's much that can be done in form of local ministries and, and the way that we're aiding the people in and around where we live. The book of James says that true and undefiled religion is this to care for orphans and widows. There's much that could be done to care for single mothers, for the food insecure, for the homeless, in and among our own neighborhoods and cities. And I think there's much that also could be said about revitalizing local news as a way of helping people feel connected to each other, cleaning up sidewalks, for instance, and doing things to grow people's sense of dependence and love in place. I love the idea of supporting local farmers. I know it isn't always financially feasible for everyone, but it is a very practical way in which you can better steward the soil of your community and the animals and and the plants and other vegetation that exists there. What are some policies there at the state or local level or at the national level that you think can help induce people to Uh, stay in the places in which they come from. I know you've said a lot in this regard about agriculture. What might be some public policies we could think about? Maybe you just give two or three examples. One thing I would love to see are more policies aimed at strengthening communities instead of just individuals. So in the realm of the U.S. Department of Agriculture, I point out that most aid is given to nuclear farm families, but that usually when those family farms were thriving in any way, shape, or form, it was because they were part of a larger network within a neighborhood, within a church that was healthy and strong. And as we've seen those local associations be hollowed out, no amount of government aid has been able to really undo that damage. And so I think we need to start thinking more collectively in terms of building health. And that could be something achieved by the way we change dollars. Also, I think by, I would personally argue for emphasizing conservation over subsidy payments for cash crops, just because there's so much that needs to be done to restore health on rural land. I also think that it's really interesting to see how a lot of heartland states like Iowa have really emphasized trying to draw back young people who've left through various returner initiative in their book, Hollowing Out the Middle, the authors of that book call young people who've left home behind and then returned to be proactive members of community, the returners. And they talk about how important those people are because perhaps when they grew up in that community, they didn't have a lot of social or financial capital. But in leaving it behind, they grew some of those things. And if they return home, they can plant all of those things in the soil of their homeland. And so a lot of states have sought to draw them home through various initiatives, whether that's revitalizing downtowns, um, making it easier to be a small business owner. All of these things can perhaps make home look more palatable to someone who's left it behind. Grace, in your book, part of your story is the story of your home place of Emmett, Idaho. And you describe how the community once thrived there was because of that network of social institutions. In many places, those social institutions that provided that social capital to keep communities glued together and help people stay in that place, those have dissipated. Many books, you know, Bowling Alone from Robert Putnam and other people have gone into this phenomenon. But but say a little bit more practically about the example of Emmett, Idaho, and what's changed there. Well, Emmett was a farm town and a mill town. So it had local sources of industry and shared work 
and vision. It had, as you might say, a telos or a purpose that was very local. Um, but it has become a bedroom community, which means people might still live there, but usually in order to work, they are going elsewhere. And that attitude of going elsewhere for things has, I think, trickled into a lot of other areas of life in that town. Many people buy their groceries over the hill, as it's called, because the town is in a valley and you drive up and over a hill in order to commute to work most often. But also church is another instance of people oftentimes commuting to worship and to find community. And so you begin to see the ways in which people's lives are very fractured. They're not living in one place. They're not worshiping and buying things and living with their neighbors in the actual place in which they live. And that just really weakens the bonds that they once had. Uh, There was an industry cluster in Emmett surrounding the agricultural um, work that was being done. And so there was a cannery, there were processing and distributing plants, there was a slaughterhouse, there were all of these things that were kind of built around the telos of the town as a farm town. And as um, agribusiness has concentrated and in agriculture itself, farms have concentrated, pretty much all of those are gone now. And so farmers are also commuting to get their product to market, even if they still work locally in terms of having fields in Emmett. Everything else they do requires leaving Emmett behind. Grace, I've got one more question. This has been a fantastic conversation. And just focusing on the Christian community generally, you would think that Christians would be the ones leading the way against this dynamic, but Christians have not been immune to the phenomenon of what might be called displacement. Yet we have all these themes of our faith, love your neighbor, not love you know someone else uh, around the world, although that's important to think globally, but act locally. Catholics used to identify as part of a parish, whether that was the actual parish community or the neighborhood was called the parish, for example. How can Christians recover that sense of place? How can we go to the resources of our own faith and lead the way toward restoring the type of culture rooted in place that you're arguing for in the book? It's such a good question, and I've been thinking about this a lot. I agree that I think the loss of some sort of parish model in which church attendance and involvement happens within geographic community has made it hard to view church as anything but a consumer choice, thus the term church shopping that we often hear. And that's such a deep problem. And once again, it ties back into that idea of throwaway culture of I can pick and choose and then move on if the place does not meet all of my needs. I think to go back to a more regional or local or rooted approach to church attendance would require us to perhaps embrace difference and embrace some friction in our lives in the name of larger loves and commitments. And I think it would require us in the, in the narratives we share about our faith to emphasize constancy, fidelity, and love, to emphasize, for instance, Lydia and Tabitha in the New Testament, or Brother Lawrence and St. Therese and St. Benedict, who who were very placed people in the way that they lived out their faith. I think there can be an emphasis, perhaps, to look at charismatic individuals within the Christian faith and to be very much focused on them in isolation and not to be considering their larger context within membership and, and community within the church. And I've wondered oftentimes if this is 
problematic. In one sense, it's wonderful because it emphasizes just how powerful the gospel is. On the other hand, however, it means that we lose that sense of everything is built on ordinary quotidian rhythms of belonging, of love, and as Christ himself said, you know, the last shall be first and the first last. And so I think as we work on changing our approach to what church discipleship means and how it happens within communities and tell narratives and stories about heroes and heroines of our faith who really worked that out in their lives, it will be hopefully inspiring to people and, and encourage them to live in a more rooted way. That's incredibly well said, Grace. Thanks so much for joining us on The Bridge Builder today. Grace Olmsted, where can people go to find your book and more of your writing? The book is pretty much anywhere that books are sold. You can find it on the Penguin Random House website, on Amazon, and on Bookshop if you would like to support a local or independent bookstore. The title is Uprooted, Recovering the Legacy of the Places We've Left Behind. And you can follow me on Twitter. I'm on Twitter at Gracie, G-R-A-C-Y, Olmstead, uh, spelled E-A-D at the end. And um, I'm also on Instagram, at Gracie Wright. Wonderful. Grace Olmstead, thanks so much for joining us on The Bridge Builder today, and God bless you and your work. Thank you. God bless you guys as well. And we'll be back in a moment with our mailbag segment. Back to The Bridge Builder, where we help you connect your Catholic faith and public life. I'm Jason Atkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and now it's time to jump into the mailbag to hear what comments and questions you've been sending our way. Kit, what's in this week's mailbag? This week we have a question about the end of the legislative session, which is now rolling into a special session. And it did end with a budget agreement, but those bills actually still need to be passed. So, Jason, can you help our listeners understand what we know at this point about how that budget agreement could impact some of the major issues that Minnesota Catholics have been advocating for this session? And then is there anything more that they can be doing before Governor Walz calls the special session? Really what they did was agree on budget targets and numbers and sort of broad principles, such as there aren't going to be an increase in taxes, For example, there's going to be a 2% increase on the uh, education spending formula in K-12 education. There's going to be tax relief for folks who receive PPP loans or unemployment insurance. And then there are general budget number targets for the various areas of state spending. But it's up now to the chairs of the relevant committees in the House and the Senate to work together on hammering out an agreement. And so over the next couple of weeks, they'll be working on that. Now, in most of those committees, the chairs will be able to work it out in a non-controversial way. But what will happen in many instances is that there will be a number of controversial items that won't be settled in these working groups uh, or conference committees. And then it will be up to the three leaders in our state, Speaker Melissa Hortman, Senator Paul Gazelka, the Senate Majority Leader, and Governor Tim Walz, and Lieutenant Governor Flanagan to look at those proposals and then between themselves hash out some of the differences. It's going to be a difficult process for sure. Minnesota is the only state in the nation with a divided legislature, and that makes things really complicated. Um, It was a challenge. Uh, These budget targets theoretically could have been arrived at much earlier. There was the question of how much federal money was going to come into the state's coffers, and that held things up. 
Um, but it's a challenge when you have divided government and vastly different priorities between the House and the Senate and even in the gubernatorial administration. So it's up to the, our leaders to work these things out. So now that those broad global targets have been put in place, like I said, the chairs and working groups will come together, try to hash things out, and the differences will end up being resolved by the governor, the speaker, and the Senate majority leader in advance of a special session likely called on June 14th, where hopefully those bills will be passed and things get done. Otherwise, the state goes into government shutdown uh, July 1st. So interesting time, and it's up to advocates uh, through our Catholic Advocacy Network to watch for our action alerts write their legislators on key priorities. But again, the best way to stay informed about what's going on in the Capitol is to follow us on the Catholic Advocacy Network, which you can sign up for on our website, mncatholic.org. Wonderful. Thanks, Jason. And before we wrap up, what do you have in the Bricklayer segment? There's a nationwide effort underway right now to ensure Congress continues to protect what's called the Hyde Amendment. The Hyde Amendment, named after the late Congressman Henry Hyde, helps to ensure that taxpayer dollars do not go toward abortion. The Hyde Amendment has had broad bipartisan support over the years, and similar laws have protected taxpayers from funding abortion for 45 years. Without the protections of the Hyde Amendment, we'll say millions, perhaps billions, of taxpayer dollars could be used to pay for abortion. It is critically important for Catholics to send a strong message before Congress moves forward to impose taxpayer-funded abortion. You can go to notaxpayerabortion.com to sign the petition right now, which will be given to members of Congress. Again, that website, notaxpayerabortion.com, to sign the petition. Make sure to spread the word as well to your friends, family, and fellow parishioners. Ask them to go to that same website, notaxpayerabortion.com, and sign the petition today. That's all the time we have. It's been a great conversation with Grace Olmstead about her book, Uprooted. Thanks for tuning in to The Bridge Builder. We'll be back again next week with another great guest, more of your comments and questions, and a new way for you to build bridges between faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, and for Kit Sapeniak, the Minnesota Catholic Conference, thanks for listening, and have a blessed day.